Hey, good morning, everybody. Really good to see you all. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. Welcome. So good to have you all here. And if you look around you, you may see more children here than usual because we're doing family worship. So we do this about once a quarter, and we do it very intentionally, not just to give the kids volunteers a rest, although they deserve it, um, but we actually do this as a way to practice discipleship. Um, we need this. I need this. I need this reminder that Christianity is not a faith that is sterile, that can only happen in the context of quiet and in our minds, where we can learn a lot of things and reflect and all those things. All that's good, but if you look in the Bible, Christianity is actually a faith that happens in the dirt. It happens in the mess of life. And so children are a really good reminder of that for us. And Jesus wants them with him. And he actually commands to not prevent their coming. And so this is one of the ways that we express that as a church. And it's also a really good reminder of what this actually is and who it's for. This is a worship service, and it's for the Lord. And yes, we are fed, and God pours his grace into us through these means, but ultimately it's for him. And he is incredibly pleased when he sees us gathering together as a family. And so all that to say, it might be a little louder, a little bit more distracting than a typical Sunday, and that's okay. That's okay. It's actually a good thing. It's a good thing to kind of teach us about how God wants us to be a family together. So welcome. During these family worships, we are actually going through a series, and the last one was back in October, so if you don't remember, then you're not alone. Um, but we're going through a series that reflects the whole storyline of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And so last in October, we covered creation. And so today we're going to be talking about the fall, talking about the fall, what it is, what happened as a result of it, and then we're going to actually see through learning and looking into the fall of the world and of mankind, we're going to see that only Jesus can be a solution to the fall. Only Jesus can be a solution to the fall. And so we're going to be in Romans 5. We're just looking at one verse because it kind of um, summarizes everything that I just said. And we'll go back into Genesis 3 as well because we have to. We have to look at what actually happened. But this is a verse that actually explains to us some of the implications of the fall. So Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore... As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that these children are here. They're a sign of blessing. They're a sign of hope. They're a sign to us that you have given us a mission to these children to pass on the gospel, so that you would continue your work on this earth long after we are gone. 
And so, Lord, we praise you for this opportunity. We ask that you would be here with us to teach us what it means to be your people, to teach us what it means to be your children, to be dependent on you, to come to you with nothing, with no pretense, and to trust you for everything. God, we thank you for the opportunity to learn about, um, about the fall of this world, and we ask that you would use it to help us and push us into faith in Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is the fall? That's something that if you've been around church for long enough, you have probably heard before. You've probably heard about this thing called the fall. But what is it? What exactly is it? And why is it called the fall? Why is it singular? Romans will help us understand that a little bit because it says that ultimately the fall was one trespass. It's one trespass. Whose trespass? Whose violation of God's law? Whose rebellion? Well, it's Adam and Eve's. And you might say, well, yeah, but it was Eve who did it first. Okay, but they're one flesh. (laughs) They became one. And Adam is the representative of humankind. And so it's known as Adam's sin for that reason. And so already, just from it being described as Adam's sin, we can see that, this, that God sees humanity not as separate and isolated individuals, but as an organism, as a family, as a whole, as a unity. And so what one does gets attributed to the other. So it's one trespass that has an effect, implications for all of humanity. We have received Adam's trespass. Does that seem unfair to anybody? Yeah, it seems unfair to me too. Like, I don't like that. But here's an issue. That's not consistent. I'm not being consistent if I think about it like that. Because if I receive something good that I didn't earn, maybe I receive an inheritance at some point. I receive the benefit of another person's work. You don't see me saying, well, no, 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 I can't receive that because it's not fair. And actually, what you can learn by that is that there is something true about it. There's a principle of how people are made to work that's at work here in that we are connected and we do receive one from another. And Adam and Eve are special because they are the first parents. They're the source of humanity. They are the representatives of humanity to God. They are, in fact the first priests of all of creation because they were the ones who were formed specifically and specially by God to do that work. And then from them comes all of humanity. And so all that we've received, we have actually received from God through Adam and Eve. And it just so happens that that includes the trespass. That includes this rebellion It includes their sin, his sin. And that has come to us just by nature of being born. 
Earlier in Romans, in verse 12 of chapter 5, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. His sin becomes our sin. And what happened through that act is that we, all of humanity, was then aligned with Satan. Because that's what happens. Satan comes in the form of a serpent into the garden, tempts Eve with Adam right there next to her, deceives her, gets her to trust him as opposed to God, gets both Adam and Eve to rebel and to assert themselves as the source of goodness, of truth, of life. And instead, it actually aligns all of humanity with Satan in opposition to God and in alignment with death, destruction, and deceit. And that nature comes to us so that inherently, just by being born, we have that propensity. We also have that guilt, and we have the stain. So we inherit what Adam has first done, but we also participate in it. And so now we're going to talk about what happened because of the fall. That is the fall, that one act, that first act of disobedience. And what happened? Well, through that one act, evil gained a foothold in God's creation. And that's exactly what Satan was trying to do in tempting Adam and Eve and trying to get them to sin, is he was looking for a way to continue the rebellion that he started in the unseen realm, in the heavenly realm, and to start making it happen on earth. And he knew that if he could get the, the head of creation, Adam and Eve, to rebel, that he would have that entry point for evil, for death, for destruction. And so, have you ever wondered what is wrong with the world? Yes. Good. Otherwise, I would question you. I have too. And the answer to that question in my household lately is that it's boring. Everything's boring. This is boring. That's boring. I'm sorry. I'm just really bored all the time. I can't help it. But that articulation is a great way of seeing how we look for um, we look for reasons or we look for things that are wrong and then try to explain them with a longing. And what, what the doctrine of original sin or the doctrine of the fall, what this teaching means is that the reason for everything that is wrong in this world being wrong is because of this entry point. That God created, you see this in Genesis 1 and 2, God created and he proclaims that everything was good and everything is very good. And there is no, no evil, no death, no decay, no boredom in it. 
And then through the fall, there was a little hole that opened up in the seen world, and evil entered in. It's ground zero for everything bad that happens in this world. It comes in through this act. One of the things that comes in through that act is separation. You see, as a result of Adam and Eve sinning, you see them sent out from the presence of God, out of the garden. The garden was this special place in creation where God's presence was, where all order had been put into place. And the job of Adam and Eve was to go and to put order into the rest of creation and make all of creation one big Eden. But that hadn't happened yet. And so Eden was kind of this special place of rest for God to be with his people. And that's where Adam and Eve dwelled. After the fall, he graciously sends them out. Why does he graciously send them out? Well, because in Eden, there's this principle of eternality, of eternal life, and it's represented by the tree of life. And God knew that if Adam and Eve were to eat of that tree, their sinful state would continue forever. It would continue forever. Redemption would be postponed. And so in God's plan, in his providence, he graciously separates them from him. But that has real consequences. I mean, right away in Genesis, you see these consequences happening where Adam and Eve have kids and one kills the other and then gets sent further out into the wilderness, into the wild. And so you see this really quickly snowballing into chaos and destruction, undoing everything that God had just done. And separation is a huge part of that. And we feel that. We feel that. We feel what it means to be separated from God because we get anxious we forget that God is the source of life because we're not in direct proximity to that. And if you think of that, especially as someone who does not know Jesus, who we take this for granted because he undoes so much of this and he gives us that source of life. But if you take Jesus out of it for just a, for just a minute and imagine a person who is completely cut off from God, from knowing that there is an omnipotent, all-powerful force, a person who loves and cares for them, who's going to give them everything they need, that's now gone, and now all of a sudden, I need to do that for myself. I need to provide for myself. I need to come up with an identity for myself. I need to come up with meaning for myself. I need to come up with community for myself. I need to figure out how to parent by myself. Completely cut off from wisdom, from life, from everything that is good, and connected to death. Connected to the powers of destruction, of decay, of deception. It's tragic. And along with that separation comes an understanding that 
God is completely holy and just and perfect. And one of the things that happened because of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit and disobeying God is that they are now guilty and they're stained. So they're guilty because they have actually committed treason and God is just. He is not going to stand for his good creation to be threatened by rebels that are opposed to it. And so he sends them away because they're guilty. But they're also stained. There's also a moral impurity that comes, and it's an ugly thing to look at and to think about. If you look at this and remember who God is, his goodness in creating, in sharing all that he has with all of creation, of giving everything to Adam and Eve, and then simply asking them, trust me, this one tree out of the whole garden, don't eat of this one tree because it will cause you to die. To have that type of goodness, of generosity, just completely thrown out of the window, it's ugly. It's a little bit hard to understand just how ugly it is when you're just reading through Genesis because we're so familiar with it and it's almost been mythologized in our minds even though it really happened. But when you make it personal, when you know that God is a person and when you think about what it must be like for someone that good, that generous, that kind to basically just be thrown aside cringe. There's, there's a stain that happens. And so God, in order to preserve the beauty and the goodness of his creation, removes the stain and takes it out of the garden. Again, separation. And then you also see curse, and we experience curse. And notice how the two areas of curse for Adam and Eve are the very things that are going to continue to keep them alive. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way before, but what's cursed for Adam and Eve? Well, for Eve, it's childbearing. Childbearing is now going to happen in pain. Well, childbearing is how the human race continues. It's a source of life. It's the fruit of life. And so God is actually allowing life to continue but he's placing it under a curse. Why does he do that? It's a reminder of our separation. It's a reminder that this world that you're in currently is not the one that you're made for. It's the one that you're in because of sin, because evil is here, but it's not the one that you're made for. And so pain, especially the pain of childbirth, is a reminder of that curse. And then provision is the other kind of way that we can continue to sustain life. We have to grow food and eat food. We have to have bread. We're creatures, so we're in need. And so what God does is he also curses that, and he says, okay, Adam, you, whose primary role is of providing food, your work is now going to be cursed, and there's going to be futility Instead of bearing fruit, there's going to be thorns. 
Stuff is not going to make sense anymore. Microsoft Word is going to crash. You're going to work for the federal government, and there will be futility in it. <laughs> and that's a reminder, again, that we are not made for this world. We're not made for the fallen world. That is just the world that we inhabit right now. And so it's a reminder, it's a constant reminder for all of us. It's something that's pointing to what's wrong with the world. Because the fall didn't just impact humanity. Romans 8 also tells us that the whole earth is growing, groaning because of the curse. So all of creation is cursed because of this. And so these specific curses are reminders of that. They point to what is ultimately wrong with this world. And then finally, you see in Romans 5.18 that there's condemnation. This one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Condemnation, how it's being used here, is the ultimate judgment of God on all that is evil. So again, God is just. He's perfectly righteous and holy. And therefore, he's not going to turn a blind eye to things that are evil. We don't want a God like that. You don't want a judge like that either. You don't even want a human judge like that. You want a just judge who pronounces punishment on evil. And ultimately, this condemnation is permanent separation and complete exclusion from God and from his new creation. So that world that we don't that we were made for, it is coming, but because of the fall, all people are excluded from it. We can't be there because we are tainted, we are guilty, we're rebels. And this is universal. This is for all men. And it comes to us by birth. Just by virtue of being a person, you are guilty. You are excluded. You are sinful. You are stained. How's that for self-confidence? This is what Scripture tells us. And so it's really important for us to allow this to sink in because it goes against every cultural instinct that we have right now that tells us that we're actually pretty good, that we are kind of born blank slates, and it's only because of the um, infection that's already around us that we are then turned towards bad things. But Scripture says, no, no. By virtue of being a person, you are excluded because you are connected to this organism. You're represented by Adam. All men. So that's a pretty hopeless place to be. And the fall is hopeless. And we can't actually understand anything else in the Bible if we don't understand how hopeless it is. The rest of the Old Testament is a testament to that. It's this cyclical repetition of people trying to undo what's been done, trying to restore creation, trying to undo the fall. 
but you cannot get the solution from the problem. And no matter what, no matter how many good things you do, you cannot take away the bad things that have been done. That's not how it works. And so there is a hopelessness that Scripture speaks to and kind of pushes you into from one perspective, but going along with that simultaneously in parallel are the promises of God, the promises of God for restoration, for a day when there would be healing, a day when there would be reconciliation, a day when there would be salvation. And so you, you can't, really, as a Christian, you can't really talk about the fall without getting to that but you also won't understand Jesus if you don't understand all of these aspects of the fall. There's a lot that can be said here, and this is just a tiny little piece of it, right? But pay attention to this. Look at how Jesus specifically solves all of these issues. Paul puts it like this. He says that one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. One singular act of righteousness. The singular act of righteousness that Paul is talking about is the person and work of Jesus. He's not talking about just one thing that Jesus did, but he is talking about Jesus' ministry on this earth. And that's how the Bible works. After carving out the fall and then kind of coming to a singular point with the birth of Jesus, we see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises of redemption, of salvation, of reconciliation. And you see that everything that he does in his life, he does specifically to address this problem of the fall this problem of sin, this problem of evil in the world. So if you look at what he does is he addresses the guilt and the stain that the fall introduced. How does he do this? He does it by being the second Adam, by being another representative. And guess what? He's not born of man. He's born of the Spirit He has no earthly father. He was conceived of the spirit outside of the birth line that continued this sinful pattern. He and Adam and Eve are the only people born sinless without a sin nature. And so his birth is free from the stain of guilt. But he also deals with our guilt with his death. He, as our representative, goes to God and offers himself as atonement. He offers himself as what's known as the propitiation of God's wrath, the satisfaction of our guilt. God's justice demands a penalty for sin, and Jesus alone can pay it because Jesus alone is wholly innocent. And he offers up himself to take away our sin. And that, what he purchases for us by dying on the cross is known as justification. 
It's known as the act of God declaring a sinner righteous because of Jesus. Because of the righteousness of Christ, God can look on us and say, you are righteous. It's not just that, oh yeah, like I know what you did, but I'm just not going to look at it. No, God looks at you and says, you are righteous before me. It's known as justification. But he also deals with the stain. And he deals with it in this way that because of the life of Christ, because of what he has purchased for us, because of the resurrection life that he foreshadows and embodies for us, we also become increasingly holy. We are sanctified. And that comes through Christ. That is not detached. That's not like our part of salvation. That's not what we do. But it comes from him. It comes from his blood as it's applied to us. It comes from the spirit that he sends us. And the, the spirit makes us new and allows us to walk in purity of life. And this is known as expiation. It's the removal of the stain. This is what Jesus does for us. And it was foreshadowed in the sacrifices. The priests would lay their hands on the sacrificial goat and then send it away. And it was this kind of like visual representation of the sin, the ugliness of sin, going away out of the camp, away from the people. And that's what our sanctification actually does, is our sin progressively, very slowly, but progressively, it starts to leave us and we become holier as we live in obedience to God. We are also separated because of the fall. And Jesus purchases our adoption, which addresses the separation. Being adopted, being brought into the family of God is not just a theological concept, but it's talking about proximity. We are his children now. We are in direct relationship with him. Paul calls this the spirit of adoption. As the spirit comes into us, as we believe and trust in Jesus, the spirit allows us to have that intimate fellowship with God. It's our adoption and it's also our communion, our ongoing experience of that relationship. So it's not just something, it is something that happens where your name is put upon you, your new name, your adoptive name is put upon you and you now belong to that family. You never stop belonging to that family, but it's also the everyday experience of belonging to a family. That's what adoption and communion are like. And Jesus sends the spirit, the spirit that is his, he sends to us so that we would be adopted, but also live as children. And then finally, in Romans 5, in 18, we see that this one act of righteousness leads to justification. I already used justification once. I'm going to use it again a little bit differently here. Because this corresponds in this verse to the condemnation that Adam brought. So what justification is referring to specifically here is this, ultimate, is this ultimate pronouncement of righteousness that will happen on the day of judgment. 
It is this justification that leads to life for all men. It's this justification that signals to all of creation that you belong in this new world. You belong in the world that's free from sin and death and evil and boredom. You belong there. This is your place with God. And it says all men. So does that mean all men just in the same way that it meant all men for Adam? Like universal salvation, does everyone get this? Well, no. It doesn't mean that. Because we receive what we receive from Adam by being born. But Paul's very clear, and Scripture is very clear, that we receive what we receive from Christ by faith. So it means that we need to trust Jesus. We need to hear the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and trust that, resting in it. Saying, yes, Jesus, you alone are the solution for my sin. I trust you, and I love you. But every single person, without exception, who trusts in Jesus will receive that life. That's what the all is doing there. And so if you are trusting in Jesus, justification and eternal life belong to you. And this is something that is offered to everyone. There's a universal offer of this good news to everyone. It's why Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, not only was it public, but it was recorded. It's passed on. It's proclaimed today. And this is something that as you feel the Spirit awakening you to it, you are justified. And that justification, that pronouncement of righteousness to a guilty sinner is just the down payment for this future justification that will happen when Jesus comes back. And we have confidence in that. And it shows us the remedy for the fall, the only remedy for it. Apart from this one act of righteousness, there's no hope to escape from a world of sin and death. In fact, looming is the permanence of it. Because that will become permanent. Right now, in this life, there's the offer of the gospel. But when Jesus returns, he will cement in eternity what he finds. And so there's an urgency that we should all feel to trust in this one act of righteousness, to receive the life that is offered, and to remember that we are unworthy recipients of this beautiful, wonderful life, and that we have been rescued from a world of decay, of deceit, of death. And so, as Christians, we get to humbly rejoice, to humbly worship the Lord, and to continue to hold out this life, hold out this offer of, of the good news to a world that 
is still waiting. Is still waiting for the return of Jesus. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And God, as we, um, yeah, as we think about and as we seek your word, Lord, you do not spare us difficult things. You don't sugarcoat things, but you also offer us the fullness of what you have done in your son. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you that we can stand here this morning and sit here this morning and be recipients of the good news of what you have done for us. And, Lord, I ask that you would help us to receive that, to rest in it, to remember it, to respond to it, to respond to it with everything that we are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.